Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. I am so thrilled to have Anne Sherry joining me as part of our conversations on brave feminine leadership. Um, Anne, it's wonderful to have you um, here with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So firstly, before uh, we jump into the conversation, for anyone in the audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey, maybe your passion and what kind of drives you? Uh, my journey gets longer every year, but <laughs> uh, so my journey has been a long and winding road, um, a zigzag often as well. I've worked in uh, many industries across many countries, across many cities in Australia. Um, I started my working life as a radiographer. Uh, I've worked in the UK prison system. I've worked at, in, a trade, in the trade union movement. I've worked for government, state and federal. Uh, I've worked in policy and operational roles. I was a banker for 12 years. And I then ran Carnival for 11 years, chaired it for another two. And now I'm a non-executive director and advisor. So I do lots of different things. Uh, I've, as I said, I've lived around the world. I've lived around Australia and, you know, I've been very fortunate actually uh, to have had the experiences I've had and the opportunity to change things. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been a passionate advocate for equality, fairness for women. Uh, I've been a passionate advocate for disability rights as well. Uh, I'm passionate about the incorporation of Indigenous Australians into uh, the full sets of opportunities that the rest of us take for granted. Mm -hmm. And uh, in recent years, I've also been very passionate about our Pacific brothers and sisters who live on our doorstep, but who have um, uh, don't get the attention I think they deserve from us as a neighbour, uh, and also us, uh, given we're reliant on them for much of uh, our seasonal labour force and a whole lot of other things as well. Um, and yeah, so that's I guess that's me. That's you. You use the word, and it comes across in spades. Uh, passion. Um, and it's not passion just directed at one area, it's directed at many areas. Where does that passion come from? I don't, look, I honestly don't know. I think you either, you either care or you don't. Mm. You know, I've met lots of people who don't care much about anything other than themselves and their immediate little micro environment. I have always, I guess, looked around me, you know, maybe paid attention to things that were happening in my environment and lauded the good things and felt angry about the bad things and the unfair things. And um, some of it comes from personal experience. You know, my experience when I was younger um, at university and looking for jobs was patently unfair and ridiculous. Uh, 
uh, I have an adult son with a disability. My experience of living with, bringing him up, watching the way he engages with the world, um, got my juices flowing around an issue that I really had no engagement with before that or no knowledge of. Uh, and uh, you don't have to spend too much time in remote Aboriginal communities to know that um, uh, for a, such a wealthy country to have people living in such terrible conditions and yet with so much money flowing around those communities and none of it making any difference to the way people live is, um, is just wrong. So I guess all of that comes from a combination of observation experience and personal experience as well. Mm. I want to dig into one of those passions today. So in the gender space, and I know you've been a strong advocate for women for many years. And I guess my interest in this conversation sort of started because particularly over the last, um, you know, maybe five or so years, it seems like the needle stopped moving with regards to increasing uh, female representation generally in leadership sort of levels. Um, and, you know, the more I dive into this, it's so layered and so nuanced and there's been so much activity going on and it doesn't seem to be um, having the impact we all might hope that it did. I just wanted to sort of dig in with you around um, your perspectives on why that might be the case. Uh, look, it's hard to know why other than there's still huge resistance. I mean, that at its core, <laughs> um, there's still um, resistance in, in all sorts of places to uh, promoting women uh, and to acknowledging capability and really, um, really getting the best person to do any job as opposed to the person who looks like you or you know or you're comfortable with or whatever it is. So... I think at its core, it's the same resistance we've always had. Um, there's been there's been a lot of change in some areas, but when you hit when you get closer to power and the top, uh, that change is much, much, much stronger. And probably the cultures and the nuances of organisations are much more embedded as well. So um, you know the real the resistance gets higher, the closer to real power change gets. Um, so, you know, it's real power defending itself. What do you think are the key barriers to moving it, though? Like, do you think, you know, if you had to sort of name a couple, what would you call out? Uh, well, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I guess, engaged with to see if it can get a, a bigger shift is... Uh, is working with male CEOs to get them to shift their attitude mm -hmm. uh, and also to listen a bit more carefully to the experiences of women inside their organisation so they really start to understand or put, put themselves in the shoes of the women who work for them rather than assume they understand it from their own experience. Uh, and that's been... There's been some success with that because I think there's been quite a few male CEOs who've been genuinely shocked by what really goes on for women because yeah. uh, they assume that men who work for them think like they do or, you know, have a, a bit of enlightenment and then they discover they don't. So I think that's one way of pushing harder at change is to get men to own the change because there's so much women can do for themselves 
there's still a lot where we need we need men to shift, not just women. So yeah. yeah, we can't fix the world for ourselves by ourselves. We've actually got to fix the source of the problem, which by and large is still um, largely men in power. So that's one strategy. And uh, I've been doing quite a lot of work in the STEM space with men who run STEM organisations, and I've seen the shift. Uh, although the numbers inside their organisations still aren't shifting fast enough because women drop out much earlier. And so there's so that's the second issue is how do you keep women engaged in your organisations uh, and your workplaces and not have them throw in the towel when they hit middle management and you know hit the I guess the layer of management that everybody knows in their organisations are like feet of clay uh, where flexibility means you know you leave an hour earlier not you know those sorts where those sorts of discussions get very testy and judgmental and so on and where management capability is pretty patchy in most organizations so i think that space is probably where there needs to be a lot more attention because that's the um that's the area where so many women get knocked out when you talk about (laughs) knocked out and down when you talk about that layer of capability being patchy um, what, what do you mean Uh, Well, I think there's lots of very old-style managers for whom power is about um, telling people no, Uh, not yes, and if only they understood the power of yes. But, um, you know, it's it's the old exercise of the power of no. And I think their power has got more limited over time, so the power of no is probably, for many of them, one of the few power games they've still got available to them. Because uh, a lot of other stuff's been taken away, so I think that's very challenging still in many organisations. So I'm sure you have had to come up against that, um, those layers of capability in your own journey, and and you've heard no. Is there things you can take from your journey that could help inspire um, the women that are sitting there right now, feeling like it might be time to check out because they're sick of hearing that? Yeah, well, I think, every, you know, we've all got choices. So I would say uh, I watch lots of women sit there thinking it's going to get better yes. or thinking they can make it better. Uh, my view is if you've banged your head on the wall a few times, then you just need to stop because you, all you're going to end up with is a headache and you probably need to look for another job or another opportunity and get away. Because I think the, the other thing I'd say is that organisations do now watch... Um, the turnover under certain managers in the organisation. You know, we even see it at, at board level. Mm. Uh, who who creates turnover? Who um, who gets poor leadership scores in their employee opinion surveys? Like I think there's a there's much more vigilance on that now. But um, uh, and again, that's not your job to fix. But if you if you've hit the brick wall, then move on is the first thing I'd say. Have the courage to move on you're not going to be able to fix it that easily uh, and you'll just get more and more frustrated. I think the second thing is to speak up about stuff like that. Uh, you know, we've been enculturated into just accepting, well, you know, Jesus, I've got a dud manager. Mm. I'll just sit here and hope that something changes or that someone notices or, or that I can get out. I think sometimes we need to, in fact, speak up a bit more and just say I'm not happy. Um, and... I often say that I've worked through in my own head, what's the worst thing that can happen if I do that? 
And the worst thing that can happen is someone goes, well, you go. And it's like, okay. well, I'm already thinking about it, so big deal. Um, yep. But it's uh, if you if we all really thought about what's the worst thing that could happen if we spoke up or said something, there's not much worse than what we're already thinking about. So um, so do it. Uh, it makes you feel better if nothing, even if nothing changes, because uh, leaving leaving and thinking oh, I've just left that for everybody else is almost you know as bad as just sitting not there. Bad. So yeah. So I just say have the courage to speak up. There's organisations now are really genuinely I think trying to listen but you can't listen if nobody speaks talking yeah um I hear a lot about conditioning and about um you know and again these are generalizations but about a lot of females waiting to get tapped on the shoulder so waiting for some kind of external validation about you'd be good at that you should give it a go um, you know talk talk to me about your moves in your career because you seem to have moved and you know across industries and yeah um look i'm uh, i have moved a lot partly because i was opportunities came and partly because i uh i was looking for different things um and i like i personally like taking risks i think there's a risk-reward trade-off. I've watched men do it forever. Mm. And uh, it hasn't been that common for women. And it's really what stood me in very good stead. So in terms of conditioning, I do think uh, many women, and this is a gross generalisation, but many women trade off what they really want to try and keep a bit of family peace, harmony, yep. and what they think their kids want. Uh, or what they think their husband wants. I've, I've said to some of the women I mentor these days, go home and ask them. Stop assuming that it's your job to, you know, take on the whole, uh, I guess, uh, role of being the solid one. You know, just go home and ask. And often they come back and go, wow, you know, everyone in my family said, you're great at that. We don't care. You know, like get on with it. So... I think there's something in that space about how strongly enculturated we are to be the, um, the one who makes the trade-offs. Uh, now, in my own experience, uh, you know, we, and I happen to have had the same partner for a long time, for a very long time now, and, uh, but we always talk together about, you know, what was the opportunity, what were the trade-offs we had to make and who would do what. Mm -hmm. And where that became a habit we started early and it became a habit and then it got easier and easier is that because the choices get harder as well do we move countries do we move cities mm. do we you know all of that they're not easy things to do and instead of assuming either i couldn't do something for, because that was a barrier or i could do it and everybody else going well, we're not coming uh you know those you've got to have those conversations and you've got to get used to doing it and i think that's, um, you know, people think that's harder maybe than it really is. Maybe for some it is hard. Um, but uh, in my case, it became the way we made choices as, a, as me, a family, not just me. Not just you. Yeah. Um, I think that's incredible advice um, for people to get that stuff sorted out early on and not to assume. Um, it makes me think of a sort of a slightly reverse scenario, but a colleague I worked with for a long time who um, was juggling 
um, senior executive roles with being a single mother. And, you know, I'd often hear her say, um, don't make decisions for me. Let me make decisions about my own career and my own path. Don't assume that I can't do things or that I won't or shouldn't do things because it's kind of your idea of um, yeah. what I should be doing. Were you a good girl, Anne? No. <laughs> Never. I think I kind of knew that. Yeah, I think I kind of knew that was going to be the case. But um, I sort of imagine, actually, I I think I probably in my head think I was better behaved than I probably was. I I met someone, I I ran into someone the other day who I had gone to school with, right, so a long time ago. And she immediately started telling stories about how naughty I was. I was like, oh, that wasn't that bad. (laughs) So, you know. But I've, I've always been completely counter-suggestive. So if someone tells me I can't do something, I immediately go and do it or try and do it. So uh, that probably didn't play well when I was meant to be towing the line. I know a lot of people will, um, you know, they will have read about you or seen different things about you. And a lot of people are going to say, well, I could never be like Anne. You know, Anne's amazing. I could never do what she does. How do you respond to that? Well, I just, honestly, there's... Uh, you know, I'm I'm a kid from a country town in Queensland. <laughs> like it's not. Um, so I, you know, anyone can. My view is anyone can do anything, right? Um, mm-hmm. Circumstances uh, sometimes get in your way, and you have to work out what you're prepared to tolerate. Uh, your own headspace often gets in your way, and you've got to work out how you manage that. Uh, your assumptions about people around you get in the way, and you've got to work out how you engage with that. And low expectations are constantly getting in your way. Mm. And whether you're, they're your own low expectations or other people's low expectations of you. So uh, I just, I think you've got to have a system. And I always say to people, I've got a voice in my head. Uh, it's the voice that says when a, someone says to me, you know, would you consider moving to New Zealand for that job? It's a voice in my head that says, what's the worst thing that can happen if I do that? I have to come back to Australia because it didn't work out and I don't like New Zealand or, you know, I've sort of, so I've got that voice. I've also got the voice that says when people go, oh, you know, we didn't consider you for that because I go, the voice in my head immediately goes, I could do that. And then I say, so I'm really unhappy that you didn't consider me because I think I could do it. And they often look completely shocked because they'll think I'll toe the line. Yeah, and but the next time they do think of me, because they've got my voice ringing in their ears, going, "That really pissed me off." Um, and so I think there's just stuff, uh, and I've you know I speak to lots of women about their uh, their assumptions about, as I said before, husband and kids. Oh, you know they my kids are at that age where I really feel like I need to put time into them. And the reality is you're barely present if you're doing a busy job already and your kids aren't stupid. And, in fact, your kids are probably really proud of you and amazed at the things you're doing, being a role model for the next generation of kids. You know, so there's that stuff that you've got to have a voice in your head that stops saying it's my job to limit what I do because I I don't think I, that's good for everybody else in my world without even talking to them. Um, and then there's, you know, at the extremes, I guess, there's stuff like at some point, um, and I, again, I've had friends in this environment where they say, you know, my partner, husband, whoever, doesn't want me to do that because that would interfere. And then you've got to go, well, is that really what I want? <laughs> is that the sort of relationship 
I want? Is that the sort of person I want to live with? You've got to make choices. And uh, and everyone in your environment makes choices like that all the time. But I think you've got to work out really what you want. And you've got to do that from inside, not outside. So, again, the other thing is stop worrying about what other people think about you. You know, when people say to me, we're you good and what do you think? Uh, do you react to that? I, I actually don't because I, I've got a sort of core belief in me um, and I've tested my capability a lot over time. So I've found myself to be able to rise to occasions that people would assume I couldn't. And, um, and I've adapted over time as well. I mean, we're incredibly adaptive as human beings and, uh, you know, I've, and I've faced into stuff that most people don't get to face into, like, you know, balancing bringing up a kid with a disability is not easy when you're in a big corporate role and you're doing lots of other things. But let me tell you, it's doable. And, you know, Nick is a great testament to probably his own wherewithal. <laughs> and the trade-offs we made internally in our household to ensure, you know, he had everything that he needed. So it's you can do stuff that really, you know, you'd never imagined you could. And so I always say, think of think of the worst thing that could happen. And if you're not there, then just get on with it because you'll be able to manage it. Sounds like you've got a really uh, good and helpful voice inside your head. Um, <laughs> And, um, you know, those voices can waver at various points in careers and journeys and all sorts of things. And I've, I read a recent article, I think, where you talked about your, your own power is internal. Are there any things you've, you know, are there any points in your career where you've felt particularly vulnerable and that voice hasn't served you as well as it normally does and you've had to, to find ways to, to sort of dig deep a little bit? Or change change the narrative of that voice. Yeah, look, look. I mean, like everybody, you have stuff that doesn't work out for you, um, and I think you just you dig a bit deeper in those moments, or and sometimes you just reset. Mm. You know, you go maybe that's not really, you know, it's not going to come, so let it go. It's not going to happen that way. Let it go. <laughs> And think about what next or what else is available, and uh, and or, and also what you can do in the environment you find yourself in. So, you know, sometimes they're the environments where you really dig deep and you find a solution to something that you weren't even looking for, mm. uh, or you find an opportunity that you thought maybe had never come, or whatever that is. So, I mean, it's happened to me in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, often when governments change, as an example, when I worked in government. You just know, and if you, and when you're really seeing it, you know an incoming government has got their own people and they'll look at you as a product of the previous government and you're suddenly thinking, God, all that work I've done and all that stuff, you know, da, 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 da. You, can hear, you can hear that voice starting to develop and I'm probably going to get booted out and, and then what do I do? Um, and so, you know, sometimes you spend a little bit of time in that cycle going this is the end of life as we know it oh my god I've just extended the mortgage and whatever and uh but then the you can't I don't sit with that for very long I mean I think you you could you know that could become your downward spiral but it takes you nowhere other than down so after I've you know had my moment of um pathetic introspection 
<laughs> then, then it's like, well, okay, so what am I going to do next? There's got to be something out there that I can do differently. And, you know, it's the same as being in a dud job and you just think I've got to get out of here. You, it, it sort of spurs you to think differently. Um, also, you know, I've, I've dealt with very difficult things inside jobs as well, which sometimes you think, how on earth am I ever going to manage this? This is a nightmare. Mm. And then you wake up the next morning and you go, I just got to do my best. You know, I just got to say what I think, do my best and hope for the best in a way. Although hope's not much of a strategy. So there's always a bit more behind that. But um, I think you've got to, you've just got to give yourself a chance sometimes and a bit of time mm. to deal with the negative things and then move forward into the, um, into the solutions that you can probably always see, but sometimes you need to, do the introspection to get there. And some people have said to me, you know, this whole female leadership space is uh, is crowded, overdone. Um, you know, why are we still talking about it? Why are we still talking about it? Because it hasn't been fixed. <laughs> <laughs> when it's fixed, we'll all shut up. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, there's still not enough women in the you know the most senior jobs. I mean, look at the federal government. There's why a, there's does it matter though? Why, why? Why, do, why does it matter? Why should why should it, people it care matters. about it? It matters for three reasons. It matters because we're equally capable. Capability is not gendered. So why are the outcomes so gendered? It's not. Uh, it's a capability issue. The second thing is diversity of thinking and experience makes better decisions. Every bit of research that's ever been done says that. And so why have we still got so many organisations and institutions? that have a whole lot of people who look and sound exactly the same with exactly the same experiences. The quality of their decision-making is lessened by that mm. and would be expanded if it was more diverse. And that's both gender and cultural diversity. Um, and then the third thing is there's a whole generation of women we have educated with expect and delivered expectation to that the world was changing. And it's changed a lot in, in the more junior levels Yep. And then suddenly you hit the wall that used to be there at a much lower level. You just hit it at a different point. And that wall needs to be knocked down. And as soon as that wall's knocked down, then we can stop having this conversation because the world will be a different place yep. with a different set of decision makers, different decisions about, you know, who gets to be. And I'll come back to politics. Federal politics is a classic. Um, who decides on who gets pre-selected for seats? A group of ancient men, largely. And that group of ancient men select men that they like primarily. Mm -hmm. And so we've got, the, we've got worse representation in our federal parliament than Rwanda and, you know, a whole lot of developing countries that we would have once poo-pooed and been positively, uh, you know, superior about how well we're doing versus them. We're, we're like down the bottom of the pile now. And yeah. I just don't want us to be there. I think it behoves all of us to make sure we can be the best we can be in everything we do. Well, we will keep talking then. Um, I was reading, even recently, you know, as this morning, I was reading about the Nordic paradox, um, which just to me shows how complex this issue is. You've got companies, oh, countries, you've got countries that are rating um, the highest on the sort of gender gap indices, and yet they've got less 
um, percentage of female managers in their ranks than, say, a country like the US that ranks sort of 51st on that scale. That's how it's counted, though. I think so, there's a whole lot of, you know, stat, statistics, bloody statistics, as they yep. say, uh, that relatively small companies in small countries, I'm not sure, are a good comparator to big companies in big countries. Big, yeah. so I guess that's the first thing I'd um, the second thing is that sometimes business cultures are very slow to move and are separate from both country and political cultures. Mm. So ironically in Australia, businesses are probably doing better than some governments here. Uh, so I've, I'm not sure there's a, you know, a linear comparison. I think wherever we're weak, we should do better. Whether that's... and. Analyzing the paradox probably doesn't move us forward other than give an excuse for stuff not to happen. Because people will say, well, that didn't work. So, uh, you know, we won't do that. I think we, we've got to push into every domain of power and make sure it improves. Mm. It's and not find excuses to do nothing. Because there's lots of people looking for excuses to do nothing. Got any particular um, lessons from your own journey that you think are worth sort of sharing? Um, look, the, the th three things I always say. One is you've got to know who you are first. You've got to have be comfortable in your own skin. If you're not comfortable in your own skin, then other people will occupy your space. <laughs> um, and that's everybody from, you know, I often said, I, Initially, I used to have my mother's voice in my head going, what is it you're really doing again? Why are you doing that, Gavin? You know, the sort of things that, uh, why haven't you done that? Why don't you just get married and settle down? Oh, you know, all of those things. So you've got to get rid of everybody else's voice, whether it's that voice or someone in your organisation telling you you can't do the job or whatever it is. And you've got to have your own voice. So listen to yourself. <laughs> Stop listening to everybody else. Second thing is you've got to have a sense of humour. There's shit happens everywhere. And you've got to have a way of managing that that keeps you at least sane and on an even keel. And a sense of humour is really important for that. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing is uh, I heard somebody else say uh, their version of this was choose your partner carefully because that's the most important decision you're going to have in your whole life. Uh, but I would just say you've got to, you, all of us operate in context, but that context doesn't have to drive every single thing we do, but it does mean that, all of us have to work out how we manage the context, whether that's your partner, your kids, uh, your decisions about travel, relocation, whatever it is, the trade-offs you're making all the time. You've got to do that actively, not passively. You and by passively, I mean assuming that it's only your job to do stuff or, or assuming that everyone's happy with the choices you're making without you ever articulating them. And so I'm a big rap for being... Um, for verbalising stuff, not just for keeping it in your own head and assuming everybody else can work out what the hell you're thinking, including in your own environment. So I think you've got to manage your environment. If you want to keep your family together or your, your relationships together or whatever it is, um, you've got to do that in a partnership model, not in a um, either a martyr model, which is, you know, I've given up everything for them, yeah. or the solo model, which is I'm off, see you later, and Maybe you come with me or maybe you don't. So I just think that piece of your life requires managing in the same way every other bit of your life does. But many people stop doing that for some reason. I think there's a, and I've observed it a lot, there's a, a thing about assuming you know or 
proximity or you're just buggered by the time you get home from work and you can't be bothered. I mean, whatever it is. Yeah. But I do think it requires for lo- both for longevity and for your own opportunity, it requires a bit more active management than many, many do. So, Anne, um, the final question that um, I wanted to get your perspective on is what does brave feminine leadership look like now and does it need to change? I think it's always required risk-taking. I think all leadership actually requires risk-taking, but brave feminine leadership definitely requires risk-taking because you're pushing into status quo, uh, very well-established cultures. So... Uh, you've got to push in and take some risk. If you don't want to take risk, then nothing will ever change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing is about it is that, uh, and this is the same, although maybe the language and the way we verbalise this has changed, is you've got to speak up. And so being passive and assuming people understand what you're thinking or how unfair things are or how terrible they are, you've, just, you've got to say stuff, not assume. And so I say people are doing this in different ways now, but, you know, you've got to say, you've got to speak because uh, no one can hear if you're silently mouthing it inside your own head. And I think the third thing is uh, we've got to support each other. Now, I think this has always been true and I know there's been lots of examples that people have given me where they didn't feel their female colleagues had supported them or um, even members of their family hadn't supported them. Yeah. Uh, but there will be people, you will find people who do support you. So find a support tribe uh, who may be different to your family, who may be different to your direct work colleagues. Find a group of people that you can talk to uh, who can, where you can come together and just download on what's going wrong and talk about strategies for change. Uh, and in, a, in that sort of collegiate, you know, empowering way that happens when you get together with a group of people. Um, and, and some of them may be men. They don't all need to be women. Um, oh. But I, because I think, as I said at the beginning, the solutions now require men to change. Uh, we've been trying to fit in and trying to push for change and it's happening too slowly. So we need to try different strategies. And, you know, there'll be, uh, and the thing I am optimistic about, I guess, is that I think young men, younger, yeah, young men, um, have a different view of their pathway than older men do. And they're not as locked into the, the paradigm that it's all about everybody supporting me so I, my career is successful. Uh, it's about wanting to make different sets of choices. So I think there's a power to having young men and women both speaking, with, uh, both speaking up about the sort of futures they want. And we're seeing that through you know one of the great things about COVID is that it's pushed into flexibility in such a different way uh we've unhooked and unleashed forces that would have otherwise taken probably a decade to unleash and for lots of men they're saying they're really enjoying time at home with kids you know those things are being verbalized in ways that weren't happening before so for um, i think brave female leadership now requires as much inclusion as we can bring to it as well to chart a different future for for all of us and mm. for young men and women as well. It's such a key point you raise about COVID. You know, I think it's um, it's brought to the table an experience people can now imagine rather than one that was just talked about. And, you know, even at the start of the crisis, people were very reticent about how it was going to work and 
you know, I think in many areas. Yeah. And I think we've got we've also got to uh, not just let it slide back. Yeah. Because uh, I've already heard quite a lot of people going, it'd be great when it goes back to the way it was. And I said, mm, what was great about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. the best way of doing things. And interestingly, I had a, I was at a meeting last week where we had a couple of people zooming in and a big group of people in a boardroom. And everyone at the end of that said, well, that was terrible. Uh, which is, you know, the way lots of those meetings used to be had. Uh, so either everybody comes in on Zoom or even those sitting in the boardroom actually do it this way because it's only one person speaks at a time. It's more personal than mm -hmm. someone on a screen staring at the back of everyone else's head. Mm -hmm. You know, those dynamics, I think everyone's now going, actually, that's terrible, whereas once it was, you know, oh, well, if you can't get here, then that's your lot. <laughs> and the rest of us will chat among ourselves and talk over you. So, you know, I think that's uh, uh, all of that. Uh, there's very important lessons we've just got to not let go of. Not let them slide. And yeah. thank you so much for joining and sharing. Um, you're an incredible example of, um, you know, really um, continuing to keep this conversation going and supporting other women. You know, I know when I reached out to you, uh, to join with this conversation, there wasn't even a question. It was just a one line, happy to do it. So I'm so honoured that you joined the conversation. And, you know, I think it's, um, there's a lot of work to be done, but I still think it's a really exciting time um, for us to, to navigate our way through and continue to, um, you know, help feminine leaders, um, you know, grow into the position yeah. we know they're capable of. And I think uncertainty brings amazing opportunity. And while there's lots of terrible things about COVID, the uncertainty it's created, I think, gives us a chance now to push into spaces that maybe we and push against doors we thought were closed. So um, I'd encourage everyone to just keep pushing because that's the way we'll change the world. Amazing. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.